Good morning, everybody. My name's Cole. It's awesome to be with you guys. Uh, my wife and I have been a part of Waipuna since 2019, and we're on staff with YWAM Maui, and uh, it's Youth with a Mission. Uh, we live over in Haiku, and we work with young people uh, to train them up to send them to the nations as missionaries. So that's kind of our, that's why we're here. Um, I'm from Oregon originally, and uh, I met my wife here during, when we were in training with Youth with a Mission uh, back in 2013, so super old. Um, but uh, we are going to talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We've been in this series uh, called A Beautiful Mess, and we're going to read it, and then I'm going to pray for us because uh, this is, I'm going to pray for myself, this is a, this is a troubling passage, um, and it's got some troubling implications for us, and, and how we handle God's Word really matters, and so uh, we're going to read this chapter, um, and then I think you'll see uh, what I mean, and then we will, we will pray and uh, get into this scripture together. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you want to read with me, it'll be up on the board or in the Bible in front of you. It says this, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, but not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for the wisdom revealed in the scriptures, and I just pray, Jesus, that you would come and show yourself to us this morning. Show us your grace and your mercy, Lord. Show us your love and your anger about sin. Show us, Lord, yourself. We want to see who you are, and we want to respond in truth. So we just pray, Jesus, that you come, and I, I pray, Lord, you'd be with me as I speak. I just pray, Lord, that it would be your truth that comes from my mouth, and I just pray, Lord, that you'd be lifted up and honored. We want to make much of you this morning, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, like I said, this is a troubling passage, um, and it has some troubling implications for how we live as the body of Christ, but I believe this. If we lean into this passage, I do think we can see God's grace and his desire for his people, and I want to just start by reminding us uh, that God is a good father, and Jesus is says he is the good shepherd for his sheep. Good shepherd for his sheep. And when you, we hear his voice as his sheep, we do well to listen. Um, he's a good shepherd. 
He knows what is best, and he tells us that he wants what is best for us. Also, it's also necessary for us to consider how this applies to our world. It is, and how it applies to our church, and it is, and I think it will probably be pretty obvious to see some of the ways that our world looks a bit like the church in Corinth and the city of Corinth, but I want to warn us about too quickly jumping to judging the world or those people, those people out there. Uh, The first use of the scripture should always be on ourselves, right? Uh, I want to let God and the scriptures work on me first. So before I use the scriptures to judge the world, this is the speck in the plank thing, right? Jesus is encouraging us, deal with ourselves before we try to deal with other people. This scripture is about dealing with other people, but I would just, I just want to le- start with, like, let's let it work on us uh, first. Also, I did not grow up at Waipuna, um, and it's possible that some of you didn't either. Uh, maybe you didn't grow up in church or you didn't grow up very involved in church. Um, and what we're going to talk about today is uh, pretty serious church stuff. It's in-house issues. It's intense church stuff. The broad category is church discipline. Um, the question is, how are Christians supposed to deal with people in their congregations who have sin in their lives that they are choosing to not deal with? Um, the spectrum on how to do this as far as churches, I don't mean the, the spectrum of the wisdom of God. I mean how it actually practically exists in our world. The wisdom of God is clear. Uh, but how it works out in our world is quite wide. Unsurprisingly, there are some churches that are quite judgmental about sin. And so no one in those congregations is confessing because they're afraid. It's not that there's no sin. It's that they never confess because they're afraid that judgment is going to be the response, right? And that is a little bit of the type of church community that I grew up in. Nobody was confessing sin because nobody wanted to talk about it because nobody wanted to rock the boat, want to make sure that the water was staying calm, right? And we were just, a lot of people were just afraid, right? Like, I'm afraid to be judged. I don't want to say anything. I don't want to be the one guy who's got a problem, right? Um, So confession and discipline often doesn't happen in those churches because no one confesses, right? Um, But there are also churches that don't do discipline because they just don't take sin very seriously at all. People don't repent from their sin because they don't realize that it's a big deal or that it matters at all anyway. Um, And they don't change their ways, but they also don't care because they just don't take sin all that seriously. And so discipline doesn't happen in those churches because, well, sin isn't taken very seriously, right? These are generalizations about broad categories, okay? But uh, this isn't, and I, I just want to tell you, this passage is not, I'm not, we're not going to try to find balance. That's not what I'm going to try to do. I don't like the word, the word balance. We're going to try to find the wisdom of God, right? This isn't about balance, right? So though I, I think my, my view is that God is much more serious about sin than judgmental people are, and he's much more serious about grace than these tolerant and accepting people are, right? He is much more serious about both of these realities. And so this is not about balance. This is about understanding what the scriptures ask of us and then what the wisdom of God shows us is the right way to live and be in community with each other, yeah? So this can be real simple. We're going to talk about the problem, we're going to talk about the solution, and we're going to try to talk about the goal of these things, okay? So the problem is this. Unrepentant sin is happening. That's the problem. So let me read this to you. It says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So remember, we're talking about the city of Corinth. We are talking about a city that has a giant temple on a hill right next to it that's basically just a temple to sex. This is to the goddess Aphrodite. And this 
prostitution in this city was a spiritual value. You, having sex with a temple prostitute was viewed as spiritually beneficial. It's good for you to do this. Um, what is happening here in this church was not even tolerated by the type of people that celebrated living like that. Right? So this is, this is a big deal. And this sin is making a mockery of the church community. The folks in Corinth know about it. And when they think of the Christians in the city, this is one of the things that they talk about. You've got to imagine Paul is not in Corinth with these people. And you can't send Paul a text. So however he found out about it, he's finding out about this because it's like famous, right? Like if it was a little thing, Paul wouldn't know because again, you can't just do one of these numbers. Like it's got to be a full on, you know, this is information being shared. So, um, and also chapter six is going to tell us that this isn't the only sexual sin that's happening in this church. Uh, Apparently the Christians in Corinth have not given up some of the practices of their old lives. Paul has to warn them about continuing to take part in the sexual perverseness in the city. He says this, don't you know that anyone who joins himself to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. Sex in Corinth was casual. It was casual. Paul is trying to show the folks in the church that sex is actually serious. He's not trying to say it's gross. He's just saying it's serious. It had actual spiritual consequences and was creating, uh, created and designed by God for a specific purpose. So he says, as it is written, he's referencing back to the Old Testament, right? The two will become one flesh. This is God's design for sex. And if you bind yourself to a prostitute, you become one flesh with this person. There's no casual sex. And Paul has asked them to live like followers of Jesus in a culture that needs the gospel, right? They are supposed to be the salt and the light to their community, and instead they're just blending right in, right? These are first-generation Christians who are being asked to represent Jesus, but they're giving in to their flesh, and they're a part of this city. These people are not repenting. Because in chapter 5, they either know about it and don't care. Or in chapter 6, Paul says, you're still living in your former ignorance. He's trying to get them to take these things seriously. Yeah? And again, these are first generation Christians. Paul's not there. Maybe they don't know. And so he's like, you got to be serious. So there is sexual sin in in the community of believers. And they are unrepentant and undisciplined. Later on in chapter 5, Paul is going to call this sin leaven. Leaven. Now, I don't bake But I am aware you only put a little bit in, and it goes throughout the whole thing, right? And so Paul is is warning them that when sin is happening in the community, it is infecting the whole, even if you think that it only affects you, which is so often the lie we tell ourselves about our sin, right? This is only about me. But he's saying that when you put leaven in, it goes throughout the whole thing, yeah? So it is not just affecting your you, it is affecting your whole community. We, We have to be aware that our actions have consequences, and that's what he's asking Uh, these Corinthian Christians to consider. We are a part of the body. We are a part of the whole. What happens to us happens to our communities. So that's the first part of the problem. Unrepentant sin is happening. And the second part of the problem is this. People are tolerating and celebrating this sin. He says this in verse 2, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So Paul says, you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be grieving? Um, I, I think this should give us real pause here, just, just for a second. Even shock us that the diagnosis of the problem at Corinth is exactly the opposite from the di- diagnosis in many churches today. 
Today, when discipline doesn't happen, the diagnosis is often that we are too humble to discipline a person. Who, who am I to point the finger? Who am I to judge? Who am I to cast the first stone, right? That, we think that that's quite humble, right? Um, and so, but opposed to humility, that, it's actually he's telling them that arrogance is what's keeping them from disciplining these people in the church. And, and usually we, I, I, I do believe this, usually we think that not calling people, or that calling people out on sin is arrogant, right? It's judgmental, um, usually we don't call people out because we want to be seen as humble or accepting or gracious, things like that. But, but Paul's diagnosis is that they are doing nothing because they are proud. Because they are proud, not because they are somehow especially humble. I think that should jolt us a little bit. Um, arrogance is this cause of the lack of discipline. Arrogance is the cause of the sin continuing, not a humble desire to not judge, but arrogance he says this, you have become arrogant. People in the church were actually boasting in this immorality. And how could that be? Like what kind of theology, what kind of thinking would give rise to boasting in immorality? Well, there's actually at least two other places in Paul's letters that he addresses something like this. Um, it says in Romans chapter 6 verse 1, should we continue sinning so that grace may increase? His answer is certainly not. But it's a theology that misunderstands the power of grace and turns it into license to do whatever we want. It's a, it's a type of thinking that misunderstands this power of grace and uses it as an opportunity for the flesh. And says, as they were saying in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, all things are lawful for me. And so they were boasting in their freedom and in the tolerance of grace, actually pride was the basis of sinful toleration. And this was and is called antinomianism. Now, this is a term that might have uh, been coined, not been coined until the Reformation, but basically what it literally means is anti-law, antinomianism, anti-law. Essentially, the view was that if Jesus had paid for your sins, you could do whatever you wanted, and it would, be, it would have no consequences because, well, Jesus paid for my sins, right? Paul addresses this in Romans, in that same passage in chapter 6, of Romans, and he, should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Certainly not, and he's going to give you some reasons here in a second, but Paul has clearly preached the doctrines of grace so intensely in the first five chapters of Romans that he has to answer the rhetorical question that comes up when you preach grace, which is, okay, so can I just keep on going? Like, can I just keep doing this? And so he's saying, I know what you're thinking. If I'm saved by sheer grace without any earning of my own, can't I just keep doing what I was doing. So in a, in a sense, good gospel preaching leads to us asking about this anti-law, this antinomianism. And, and because of Paul having to address this question, we shouldn't be surprised if we also have to address this question when we rightly preach the gospel. A uh, pastor from the century before us, Martin Lloyd-Jones, this is what he said about this. The true preaching of the gospel of salvation by grace alone always leads to the possibility of this charge being brought against us. There is no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this, that some people might misunderstand it and misinterpret it to mean that it really amounts to this, that because you are saved by grace alone, it does not matter at all what you do. You can go on sinning as much as you like because it will redound all the more to the glory of grace. This is a very good test of gospel preaching, Jones says. If my preaching and my presentation of the gospel of salvation does not expose it to that misunderstanding, 
then it is not the gospel. So, oh, oh, how well are we preaching grace? How well are we preaching grace? Because he's saying, listen, you are saved by grace alone. That should lead to a question like this. And so that's why Paul has to address it. eh? But what he's saying and what Paul claims in chapter 2 to have preached to the Corinthians is this. That Jesus Christ died and paid for your sins in his body on the cross. You cannot do anything to make God love you more. And you cannot sin so much to make him love you less. Or to keep his pursuing and radically free grace from chasing you down. That's great news. That's great news. And when you preach like that, and when you present the true gospel of Jesus Christ to people, it actually does open up this sort of misunderstanding. And, and this gets further explained in chapter 6, when the call of antinomianism is expressed by Paul like this, all things are lawful for me. But Paul's response to this is actually quite simple. In Romans, it's certainly not. How can you who died to sin still live in it? But Paul is going to ask them in chapter 6, basically, what good did it do you? What life did it bring you? What life did you find in selling yourself to sin? What did you find in those things? And, and in Romans, can you who died to sin still live in it? So the problems here, the, the mess here is that there is sin in the church. And the church knows about it and the church isn't doing anything about it, but is even arrogant about it. That's the mess. So how does it become beautiful The solution, Paul says, is discipline and purity. You're like, I really wish it was a different solution. Is there there a different solution than discipline? Paul describes this in two different ways. First, very clearly at the end of verse 2, get rid of the guy. Send him out. Send him out. Let the one who has done this be removed from among you. Okay. So now we're in the meat. We're like, we were all okay with the first part of this, but here we go. So get rid of the old leaven, he says. Now this is important because, so he starts by saying, remove this man from among you. He goes on and says, get rid of the leaven from among you. But I just want to highlight one thing about this. He is not saying that that guy is leaven. The sin in that guy's life is the leaven. Okay, so leaven is very, again, I do not bake, but leaven, I know, is very difficult to remove from a loaf of bread once it is worked in. In fact, you might even say, with man, this is impossible. (laughs) But Jesus would say, with God, all things are possible. Apparently, Paul is saying that there actually is a way to cleanse the loaf. We know how leaven works in, and Paul is warning us to stop tolerating and celebrating the impurity and death that is worked into our community through sin. Stop. So how do we get rid of the old leaven? It's through discipline. So I, I want to talk about two different passages very quickly from the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus talks about discipline as well. The first is in Matthew chapter 7 where he encourages us to judge not. But that he doesn't stop there, does he? He says, get rid of the plank from your eye so that you actually can help your brother get the stuff out of his eye. And so I would just say, put it to you this way, judge not so that you can judge well, right? That's what he's saying. He's saying, get rid of the plank from your eye. Judge not until you have removed so that you can actually judge well. And the hope of judging well is reconciliation. It's not, you know, destruction. But in Matthew 18, this is what he says. He kind of outlines church discipline for us. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. 
If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now this is really important what he's saying. He's giving us instructions on how to actually discipline. But what did he say the goal was? He says, go alone and if he listens, you have gained your brother. We want them back. Right? We want them back. So these are, this is the order. He says, go to him yourself, then take someone with you, then put him to the church, and then turn him out. These are the steps. Go yourself, take someone with you, put him to the church, and then turn him out. That's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, right? As small as possible for as long as possible, right? That's how we want our conflicts to be. As small as possible for as long as possible. But apparently, the church in Corinth, we are already down to the last step in this. And we can surmise why. Because everyone already knows this is a public conflict. This has already been done. And so Paul says, when you are together, turn him out. Apparently, the church in Corinth already knew, which meant that the man in this story was already aware. It was already public. So we are at the end of Matthew 18 discipline instruction, right? It's time to, it says, hand this guy over to Satan. Hand this guy over to Satan. So what does that mean? What, that's, a, that's a heavy thing. What does that mean? Um, it is absolutely essential, before we talk about this, it is absolutely essential that we remember that the point of church is not community for community's sake, right? It is community for the sake of the members of that community being more like Jesus. That's why we're here, yes? If you just want to come to church to make friends, there are probably better ways to do that. Seriously, there are better ways to do that. But we are here to be more like Jesus. And Jesus is not limited to only using comfortable, easy ways of waking us up and transforming us. If we don't listen, this progression of discipline is, Jesus is saying, if you don't listen, it gets louder. Does that make sense? And so we are not here just to get happy pats on the back. We are here to be conformed to the image of Jesus. We want to be disciples of Jesus, and sometimes that is hard. Sometimes that is hard, and sometimes that means taking the hard road or being led to the hard road by the people in our lives. Sometimes it means like Job and Peter as well, we'll talk about here in a second, is that God is going to be using the enemy to accomplish his purposes. So, so what does it mean to be handed over to Satan? I think very clearly Paul means mainly this, turn him out to the ruler of this world. Send him away. If, if, if continuing to show mercy is actually just enabling the sin, then turn him out. Then turn him out. And just, just really quick, there's th- three different characters here that I, I, I want to highlight from the rest of the Bible story. We'll go Job, Peter, and Paul. Because the devil is going to be intimately involved in all three of these guys' stories. But each of them is going to end with the glory of God and not the victory of the enemy. So for, for Job, for Job, God turns Job over to Satan. Although the devil is told that he may not kill him, yeah? But Job's life is destroyed, but God restores it back to him and reveals himself to him. Job's, Job's life is destroyed. It is. But through incredibly difficult circumstances, God restores it back to Job. And God asks him after, actually, when he's finished, to pray for and strengthen his friends who were supposed to be his counselors during that time. Um, so the purposes of the devil actually lead to the glory of God, and the strengthening of God's man. For Peter, this is a part of the uh, 
Peter's denial of Jesus that we don't talk about very often. But in Luke chapter 22, Jesus tells Peter that the devil asked for him. He asked for him. And Jesus says, but I told him no. (laughs) It's crazy. But Jesus protects him from the fate of Judas. But he tells Peter, you will deny me. Oh my goodness, right? But he actually tells Peter the exact same thing that, that Job gets told in the Old Testament, which is when you return, strengthen your brothers. So after going through this trial with the devil, you will come back and strengthen your brothers. Okay, okay. So, and then for Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says this, that he was given a messenger from Satan, which we usually call the thorn in the flesh, but Paul calls it a messenger from Satan, which is, (laughs) yeah, anyways. But he says that it was given to him to keep him humble, and the result of the thorn in his flesh, this messenger from Satan, is this response from Paul. he, He says, this is what the Lord told me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul tells us that he's actually then going to boast in his weakness. So the messenger, the result of the messenger of Satan was a bummer for Paul, (laughs) yeah? But it led to humility and new life for him. And and this is what I I really want us to hold on to here is that God allows the devil to work, but he does not allow the devil's work to be final, that, and that's a crucial part of our understanding of what it means to be protected by Jesus as a believer. God allows the devil to work. Peter, Job, Paul, all these guys, the devil is in their stories. But he does not allow the enemy's work to be final in their lives. So it's not, it's not as simple as saying that whatever God or the devil does, it's all the same and it's just about your response. It's not that simple. I could have read to you the stories of Pharaoh and Saul and Judas and we'd have a very different sermon here. Uh, But the reason that I read to you from Job and Peter and Paul is because the devil is involved in these guys' lives with the full permission of God, but the result is not the devil's victory, but the victory of Jesus even through the devil's schemes. Does that make sense? So for Paul and for this guy in the story, the reason is not for punishment and condemnation that Paul tells them to turn him out to the devil. It is to see the reconciliation and redemption of this person through the victory of Jesus over and against the devil's schemes, even as he uses the devil to accomplish his purposes. Essentially, Paul is saying that the very best thing for this guy is to hand him over to Satan. Jeez, man. And so Paul says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You are to, let me say this one more time, with the power of our Lord Jesus, deliver this man to Satan. So celebrate, this is then what Paul says. After we've gotten the leaven out, celebrate Jesus dying and then live in the freedom that comes from the celebration. He says, cleanse out the old leaven as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So because Jesus has done for you what is necessary for you to be clean, and you have been covered by his blood, and you can do what would be impossible in the natural, cleansing out leaven. That is impossible in the natural, but it can be possible through Christ. You can be made to be unleavened through the cleansing of Jesus. And he's saying, now, when you do that, celebrate the Passover lamb. So what's he asking them to do? 
take communion again, right? He's asking them to come to the table again together. So that's the solution. And at the end, we, we actually get to see what happens to this guy because he gets referenced a couple of times in Second Corinthians. But I, I want to dwell on this for a second before we get to this guy specifically. I want to talk about us, this idea of you really are unleavened. So what is this, what are we actually supposed to do with that information? Because he's talking about sin in the church. He's talking about nasty sin that's like causing the church to be mocked in the community. And he's like, what you actually need to do is come to the table and celebrate that you really are unleavened. It's like, how can that be? You just told us we got leaven. (laughs) How can you? And he's saying we need to live like we are what Jesus says we are. That's how we have to live. We have to live as Jesus says we are. Jesus has changed these people. Remember, Paul is talking to them like they are members of the family of God. He's not talking to them like they are outsiders. That's what he says. What do I have to do with judging outsiders? I deal with us, and we are unleavened. He's not confronting them because he's condemning them. He's confronting them because they are part of the family of God, and they need to live like it. They need to live like they belong to this other family. So we, that's thing number one. we got to live like we are what Jesus says we are. But this is the other thing. In doing that, we then have to take unrepentant sin seriously. And this is why we we have to take sin seriously. Because of our identity. Because we belong to God's family. Outsiders don't have to deal with sin like we do. We, We don't get to just let sin happen. Because we are a part of the family of God. And we have been, the message of 1 Corinthians is that we actually have been enlightened. We have real wisdom. We have seen and known God, and we have been known by God. And as Paul said to the Romans, how can you who died to sin still live in it? You are a part of a new family. You have a new name. You have a new identity. And, and judging the world, it does no good. We've got to deal with ourselves. It's, it's so easy as Christians to just feel like we are better than other people. We're better than those people out there. We just want to applaud ourselves for not being like those people, right? But Paul is saying that because the transformation that comes to us is actually from the power of God, and the people in the world do not live in the power of God, then we need to deal with ourselves and not them. The power to kill sin is the Lord's power, not ours. And we have the power of God here in our lives. So as we deal with ourselves, it's not for condemnation. It's because we are living in Christ. And so we have to take different stuff seriously. The goal, though, is this restoration and reconciliation. And and he's going to tell us this from (laughs) chapter 6. We were like that guy. This is what it's going to say in in chapter 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, or adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. None of them are going to inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The difference between you and that guy is Jesus. It's, it's not that you're somehow smarter than him. It's not that you figured it out better than him. It, no, it's, it's the ministry of Jesus Christ to you. No unrighteous people will inherit the kingdom of heaven, and such were some of you. You used to be living like this too, but that's not who you are now. Not because you cleaned yourself up, not because you're better than the rest of these people, not because... In a lot of cases, you are even currently living better than a lot of these people. 
but because you have been saved by the grace of Jesus and you are now clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the difference. That's the gospel. That you did not deserve or earn for yourself. So how do you deal with people struggling with sin? How do you deal with people struggling with addiction? You, you take it seriously, but you remember that that was me too. And if it wasn't for Jesus, that would be me right now. That's it. All glory and victory goes to Jesus Christ and not to us. And now we get to live, now we get to live in freedom. And, and it's not freedom to sin, right? It's freedom from sin, right? We do not use freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Was Galatians chapter 5 is going to say, we let faith work itself out in love. Not as an opportunity to sin, but an opportunity to be free from it. And let, I, I, I want to read to you these passages from 2 Corinthians that talk about this guy because it's ju- the, the, the story isn't finished for us and it's so rich. Apparently this person is still around and apparently he hasn't like left Corinth. Um, he's still around the community and now the community needs to be encouraged to do something and that is to reconcile and show him love. And Paul is eager to do just that. He wants to see reconciliation. He wants to see this guy brought back into the family. That is the goal. And so this is what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. He says this. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. What, are we, what is he talking about? You guys sent him away. Right? This punishment by the majority. Y'all sent this one guy away. So... You should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. You're like, Paul, I thought you're the one who wanted his sorrow. Paul's like, I never wanted his sorrow. I wanted his repentance, right? So he said, I don't, this isn't just for guilt. This isn't just to make him feel sad. So he says, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. You're like, wait a second, you're the one who handed him to this guy. What? But this is what he says. He caused pain. In the beginning, he says he caused pain. He was punished and cast out of this community. But now it's time to restore him. Apparently, it worked. Right? Apparently the discipline worked. And so now he says, reaffirm, reaffirm your love for him. And then he says this at the end, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. We turned this guy out for his good, not for Satan's. <laughs> we, t- we turned him over to Satan, but don't leave him out there. We are, he says, we are not going to be ignorant of his designs. We are not going to be ignorant of his designs. We know that The devil's way of working is by isolation and separating this guy out and getting him to believe these lies. And he's like, so now it's time to go and tell that guy you love him and bring him back. Right? We sent you out for your good. We sent you out for your good. And so we are now going to go get you for your good. Right? 2 Corinthians chapter 7 says very directly, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 10. Here we go. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And how do we, he's told them right at the beginning of this passage of chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, he said, you are arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn? 
And he says, and when you mourn like Christians, it produces repentance. And we know this, man. When you, when you have guilt in your life like the world, what does it lead to? It leads to isolation and death. But when you have godly grief, he says, it leads to repentance. So then he says, for see what earnestness this godly grief produced in you. You became passionate, right? But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation about sin, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, therefore we are comforted. So he's saying, listen, like we had to go through this and this hurt. But we had to go through this for his good, for your good, for our good, for everybody. This is the right thing to do, right? Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Without regret. So godly grief produces repentance. Repentance comes when people grieve over sin because it breaks the law of God, because it breaks the heart of God, and it breaks community. And you see it, and you grieve, and repentance happens. And we got to end here. When repentance happens, reconciliation must happen. That's when everybody else has got to open back up and say unforgiveness is not going to have a root in our church. When someone repents, we have to be ready to reconcile right then. We got to be ready right then. And so to conclude, three things real fast. Shane, you guys can come up. He says, first, we must repent. We don't want to be the guy in the story who has unrepentant sin that tears apart the church. We don't want to be the ones who are leavening the loaf, right? I know it's hard to be the first one to repent, right? It's so hard to step out, to fear the consequences. But sin is a cancer and it has to get dealt with. And the second thing is this. So we got to repent first, but we also have to be ready to do the discipline. We don't want to be a church where the mess is tolerated and celebrated. We don't want to be a church where sin is in the loaf. We don't want to be a church that the world celebrates because we tolerate sin. We want to be a church that succeeds as the Lord counts success, right? And the goal of the church is not just to have a bunch of happy, comfy people. It is a place to see people become like Jesus, This does not mean we do a witch trial and cast everybody out who looks at us funny. It means we follow Jesus' instructions for discipline and follow through with faithfulness. It, It also means we trust the hearts of our elders toward us. When they're working in discipline in our church, it means we trust their hearts too. Because we've been entrusted to them and they and they've been entrusted to care for us. And so then the last thing is that when people repent, when people repent, we forgive. And we reconcile right away. No roots of bitterness. No unforgiveness. We need to be ready to reconcile the moment that people are ready to reconcile. We have got to be ready to forgive as we have been forgiven. We have got to be ready to forgive as we have been forgiven. Yeah? Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you, God. I thank you so much for today. I thank you for your word, Lord Jesus. I thank you so much for... um, the truth of this word. I, I, I thank you for the heaviness of this word. I just pray, Jesus, that you would come and, and work in our hearts. Lord, Holy Spirit, would you just come and convict and, and move. And um, Yeah, we just, we pray, Jesus, that you would have your way in Waipuna Chapel. Um, Lord, that, man, that we would not think that sin is just something that affects us. We would understand that sin affects everybody here, and it affects the community, Lord. And I just pray we would take it seriously, we would deal with it seriously, we would bring it into the light so that our whole community can help us kill it. 
And I just pray, Jesus, that we would be ready to forgive as we have been forgiven, that we would be ready to reconcile as you have reconciled us to yourself, that we would be your representatives and be your image bearers by forgiving sin. And I just thank you, Lord, that godly grief is meant to lead us to repentance and salvation that doesn't have regret left in it, Lord. So we thank you, God, for your faithfulness to us. We love you so much, Jesus. Amen, amen, amen.